Our scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, and 42 to 46. You can find this reading starting on page 826 in the Red Bibles under your chair. Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 18. In the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And skipping down to verse 42. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name's Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. Really happy to be with you guys this morning. So before I jump in, can I just say I really enjoyed Room at the Table last week. Uh, Huge thank you to everybody that was involved in making that happen. Can we give them just like a round of applause for how much work they put in? That was a ton of effort. The Jim, Loney, Justin, Jenny Hayes, Betsy, Denise, Sandy, Mom, all you guys. I know I'm forgetting others, but but thank you very much. Also, thanks to Everett for, for leading us in communion. I thought that was a really special time and really meaningful. So we'll still be looking for people to help prep the meal, serve, clean up. We really want Room at the Table to be something that's kind of shared by all of us as a community. So let us know how how you'd like to help or if you have any ideas or or suggestions or comments. All right, so today we continue in the Gospel of Matthew. So this is a book that was written by one of Jesus' disciples. He basically compiled testimony of what Jesus did, who Jesus was, and he wrote this book. It's sort of a, a biography of Jesus, but we call it a gospel because any biography of Jesus inevitably is going to be very, very good news because what Jesus did is good news, and so we call it the gospel of Matthew. So it's getting us up to speed. What we've seen these past two weeks is how Jesus on the night, or on the, on the week he died, he entered into Jerusalem. He made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover, a Jewish festival. And when he got to the city, he did two things that probably resulted in his death. It was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. The the first thing is he rode in in this triumphal way, basically announcing, like, I am actually the king of this city. And then from there, he went into the temple, the center of Jewish national life, brought all the programming in the temple to a halt, and, and essentially accused all of God's people of trading in fake worship for what should have been real worship, lived through all of life. So they're really, really bold, audacious things to do. And both of these things reminded the citizens of Jerusalem of stuff that the Hebrew prophets had spoken years before. So both of these actions were deeply offensive to a lot of people, because through these acts, Jesus accused the people of Israel of basically betraying who they were set apart to be. He accused them of turning their back on God and was essentially announcing that now God is turning his back on you. 
And these were both really public acts, right? And so it was deeply embarrassing, especially to the leaders of the nation who had to just sit there and let it happen to them. So aside from these two big public things that Jesus did, there was actually a third thing. And it's interesting, when you read sort of like scholarship on Matthew, a lot of scholars will, will actually lump in this third thing with the triumphal entry, with the clearing of the temple. The only difference is that it wasn't public. The only witnesses were a few of Jesus' disciples. And what it is, is, is what we read this morning. Jesus is making his way back into the city during Passover week. He's been staying in probably Bethany, just outside the city. And he comes across a tree, and he approaches it. He's hungry. It's a fig tree. He's going to look for figs, and he finds none on there. And then he curses the tree. And that's it. The tree withers in front of him. It's this really kind of weird moment, especially for those of us who, who aren't Jewish Christians from the first century. We, we see this moment, we think like, man, this is kind of weird and seems kind of selfish and arbitrary and maybe like a little out of character for Jesus. What's going on here? So all the early eyewitnesses uh, that, the, that the writers of the Gospels compiled, all of them basically agreed that, that Jesus of Nazareth wielded supernatural power. You may be here this morning and not believe that, and that's totally fine. It's just important for all of us to be on the same page and realize that the first century witnesses of Jesus believed that. So they all believed that Jesus wielded this supernatural power, but they also were, were pretty committed to the idea that he never used that power kind of just for selfish ends, right? In fact, at the beginning of Matthew, there's this moment where Jesus is in a desert, in the middle of this huge fast that's going on for days, and it, like, the idea is presented to him that he could make himself food out of stuff that's not food, that he'd use his power for selfish ends, and he doesn't do it. He's not going to do it. So what's going on here? It's like we went from Jesus who refuses to make himself bread to a Jesus who's like, is he really so petty that he would approach a tree, not find food on it, and then be like, wither now, and it would just be destroyed. Like, are we really to believe that he's just suddenly become very, very petty? I don't think so. It's confusing us, but to the earliest Christians, who are almost all Jews, this moment made perfect sense, especially given what Jesus had just done in the temple. What we're seeing when Jesus withers the fig tree is a live symbol. It's like an acted-out symbol. And the message of this symbolic act would have been a deeply disturbing one. Let me take a couple minutes to explain why. Can we pull up the picture? There we go. What we read about in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we also call the Old Testament, is that God brought together a people. God brought together a people around a shared vision of, of life. It was the way of life that God had made the world for. It was his kingdom, his rule, and he was going to restore it to the world through this people that he had brought out of bondage and slavery and oppression. He united them under this common vision of life, the kingdom of God. And he constituted them, right, around this kingdom. What's a constitution for? What does a constitution do? It brings together a people, right? Like our constitution brought us together, brought the colonies together as a nation under a shared vision of life that's described in the constitution. Well, God constituted a people as well. And so what they'd been constituted to be was this living example of the way of God, 
They were going to be a living example of, of what life was meant to be in a world that had rejected him. And so they were supposed to be a people of justice and love and worship and authenticity. And they, they weren't supposed to be this sort of siloed group, right? God at one point called them a kingdom of priests, that they were going to represent God's rule to all the nations around them. So that eventually every family on the earth, every nation on the earth would be blessed through them. This was called the nation of Israel. Now, ever since God called his people to this way of life, ever since that moment, the thinkers and the poets and the prophets of the Hebrews, they'd been writing about you know, this, this idea, this, the kingdom of God, and they would compare this way of life to a fruit-bearing plant, right? They would say, like, the, the, this nation, Israel, it's like a tree, and if we follow the way of the kingdom, it'll be like a tree that's bearing fruit. Sometimes they'd call it a vineyard. In fact, that was really, really common in the, the later prophets. The image turned more to, like, a, a vineyard. But many of us are familiar with, like, Psalm 1, talking about the righteous man. It's like a tree planted by streams of water who bears his fruit in season. His leaf does not wither. So it's idea that, this idea that the people of God are like trees, like plants. And when we follow the way of the kingdom, this, this thing that we were constituted for, when we follow that way, it's like we bear fruit. This is a painting by a, a prominent Japanese-American artist. His name is Makoto Fujimura. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he at one point, he was actually on the board for the National Endowment of the Arts. He's been hugely influential uh, especially because he's sort of revived like a very ancient Japanese artistic style called Nihonga, and then except like is using that technique for modern art. So he's just breaking all the rules, and people love him for it. Also, he happens to be a Christian. Uh, this is a, a painting of his called Kiseki Miracle. There's actually a print of it hanging in my office. Um, he printed it for a lot of reasons, I'm sure, but he's mentioned that a big part of what he wanted to make this painting for was to sort of express this idea of the fruit-bearing tree. Uh, if you've ever read anything by him or, or like, listened to him talk, he has, like, a really kind of distinct way of using words. Uh, so he, he likes to talk about generativity, generativity, which sounds like a, like, corporate speak, which is why he cracks me up. He's, like, an artist that talks in corporate speak. But so he, he talks about generativity, life that generates life. That's sort of his way of encapsulating what, what it is to follow the Lord. That, that our lives begin to generate life and to bear fruit, or in this pl- case, bear cherry blossoms. It's this beautiful image of a, a people who, who, just as they're following the way of the Lord, beauty and goodness just sort of, like, grow out of their lifestyle. Not because they're moralistic, not because of anything like that, but because just as they follow the way of God— They begin to share God with the world. They become fruit-bearing trees. So ever since God had brought together the people of Israel, this idea of the fruit-bearing tree became this really big image for them. They would talk about what a beautiful thing it is that God expected them to be, but more often than not, that's not actually what God's people looked like. And so they would, the prophets and, and poets of Israel, they'd still talk about Israel as a tree, but no longer as one that was bearing fruit. They talk about it as a dried-out, withered tree, as a tree that was failing to, to produce fruit. They would talk about God as though he was someone strolling through a vineyard that was supposed to produce fresh grapes, and instead all there is is wild grapes or withered, rotten fruit. 
In fact, one, one prophet said it this way. He was, the, the poem is written from the voice of God. And, and this prophet, he says that God is like one who goes to his tree to find fruit, but he says, woe is me, there is no ripe fig that my soul desires. And that's why this moment in Matthew is so ground-shaking. Jesus literally acts out the role of God. He approaches a tree just like he approached his people and came to them. He looks for fruit just like he looked for lives lived by the way of the kingdom, and instead he finds nationalism and materialism and pride, and so he withers the tree. I think this is what, why this, is, this would be so offensive is this is like Jesus tearing up the Constitution. That's the level that this is, actually, this is operating on. Jesus is tearing up the constitution of Israel. He is saying Israel is not Israel anymore. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he's bringing together a new Israel. And this new Israel won't just be like ethnic Jews, though it will include many ethnic Jews, and the whole movement, in fact, is going to be launched by them. But this new people won't be made up of any one kind of person the thing that this people will be united around will be the person of Jesus, an identity shared in him and a shared commitment to following his way. Jesus is writing a new constitution. So that's what's going on. Jesus is replacing God's people to reconstitute God's people. So here's what the rest of the sermon is going to look like. Jesus told three stories to sort of illustrate what it was that he was doing here with the fig tree. Three stories. And so we're going to skip the, the next section if you're following along your Bibles, like verse 23 through 27. We're going to wait until next week to tackle those, and we're going to jump to the three stories that kind of illustrate what Jesus is doing. It's a lot of verses, so I'm not going to read all of them. I'll relay the content of the story and then tap into like specific verses that I want to point out along the way. And what each of the stories do is they add like one small nuance to this idea of, of what Jesus is bringing together. So I know in some ways this seems like, man, is, is this really relevant for us to be thinking about like all this stuff about Israel and, and the early church? I would say it, it's hugely relevant. And the reason why it's hugely relevant is because what we're going to see in this passage is, is what the people of God were always expected to be and, and the, the sort of people that Jesus is, is making us into as his community, as his church. And so I think it's hugely relevant for us we're going to jump right in. First, Jesus replaces a people who talk with a people who walk. So here's, here's this verse that starts in, in, in verse 28, this story. It's about a father and two sons, and the father has a vineyard, and he's about to tell both of his sons to go and work in that vineyard. Now, here's what we all need to, to pay attention to with this story. Pay special attention to what the sons promise versus what they deliver, Okay? That's what the whole story hinges on, what the sons promise versus what the sons deliver. So first, the father goes to the first son. He tells him, go and work in the vineyard, and the son tells him, no, I'm not going to do that. But then he decides that actually he's going to go and do that, and he ends up in the vineyard, right? He, he ends up working in the vineyard. Then next, the father goes to another son, and he tells him, go and, and work in the vineyard. And that son says, like, you got it, dad. And then he goes off and does his own thing. And that's the whole story. So here's Jesus' explanation of it. He, he, this is what he says the meaning of it is. He says, 
talking to the, the chief priests and the elders here. I forgot to mention that he's talking to the leadership of Israel here. He says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. John came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you didn't afterward change your minds and believe him. So what he's saying is that there's all sorts of people at this time in the nation of Israel that are just kind of written off as just morally beyond hope. They were the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Some of you may be thinking, why the tax collectors? Like, I don't like IRS either, but I'm not going to, you know, damn them that way. But no, the reason why the tax collectors are, are so repugnant to the first century Jews is because in many ways what the tax collectors had done was sold out their own people. So under Roman oppression, tax collectors were people of the Jewish nation who agreed to collect taxes from their own people. And oftentimes, uh, they were fully conscious of the fact that the Romans were taking more than they needed to, and then the tax collectors would often extort extra money themselves. And so they were just seen as, as Benedict Arnold's to the 10th power. It was just, these, these guys are, are traitors. And so it, it would be sort of like a catch-all phrase, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, these are considered just the folks that, that are the lowest of the low, morally bankrupt. Most people in Israel would take one glance at them and think, hopeless, there's no way that person is going to find their way into God's kingdom. They're in too much sin. If they've gone that far, there's no coming back. On the other hand, there was another group of people. And if anybody appeared to have given God a big yes, it was this group of people. It was the chief priests, the elders, the leadership in Israel, the people that Jesus is talking to as he tells this story. They were righteous. They were kind of like moral athletes, right? I mean, they would just lead their lives with such, like, piety and devotion. I mean, just every, everything was, was all, they had all their moral ducks in a row, right? And so people were very impressed by them. I think they were very impressed by themselves. And so if anybody seemed like they had given God a big yes, it was then. But Jesus says that things are actually entirely reversed. He, he says that those who appeared to have said no to God at first, they've now said yes to him. And you who think you've said yes to God, the truth is you've told him no. And he talks about his cousin, John, who had a ministry in Israel. He says that when John came, he called people to repent. And the people that that you think are too far gone, they were the first to repent. They went into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you, he's saying. And the reason why is because the leadership in Israel didn't think they needed to repent anymore right? They thought that was a, a past tense thing, right? No, no, no. We repented. We said our yes to God. That's why we're in leadership here in Israel. They thought they had taken care of that whole mess long ago, and this is a problem that can still plague the church. Jesus came to save us from our sin, and there's a lot of us who have grown up in the church, and we, we sort of are very familiar with sort of like the, the way of being a part of a church community. And so we begin to lose touch with what it means that Jesus came to save us from our sin. And sometimes for Jesus to save folks like us from our sin, he ends up having to save us from our goodness. It's easy for us to think that because we associate with God's people, we must be one of them. 
It's easy to think that because we identify as one of God's people, we must be one of them. But when it really comes down to how we live our day-to-day lives, we aren't following the way of Jesus. Because here's the truth. Jesus didn't come to save good people. He came to save bad people. And what I mean by that is that Jesus is saving people who can recognize the truth of their own lives, who can recognize their need for change, who can recognize that they are every day in need of grace. He's coming for people who may not be entirely righteous, but it's righteousness that they want because it's in righteousness that they are going to find wholeness and healing. As Christians, we aren't people who repented. We're people who are repenting. The reason the tax collectors and the prostitutes repented is because they were woke to their sin, right? There was no denying it for them. They were aware deeply of the fact that they had done things that were morally harmful and dark. And so when John came to folks like them, when Jesus came to folks like them and said, this part of you no longer has to have the final word, they repented. But John and Jesus, they also came to, to those who saw themselves as, as good, right? I'm a basically good person. I've been a Christian for a long time. I know how this works. Jesus and John came to folks like that and called them to repentance and said, this self-righteousness should not have the final word about you. But the reaction was very different. That's an identity that's harder to give up. It's easy for us to want to give up the title sinner to the cross of Christ. It's harder for us to give up the title righteous to the cross of Christ in order to receive his righteousness. We shouldn't fool ourselves like many of the nation of Israel had, like many of us are. But also, I want to speak this to those of you who feel like you've said no for a long time to God. And I want to say to you that it is not too late, that you are not too far gone. But the message of this is that even if you don't feel like you fit in with the people of the church or like whatever that sort of stereotypical church person is that you feel like you need to live up to, Jesus extends a welcome to you to repent. Here's another way where I think this is really important for us as well. One of our values here at Trinity is mission. So we care deeply about announcing the good news of Jesus. We want to be disciple makers, each of us as individuals. So this is an important thing for us to consider. I think the people most ready to trust Jesus are rarely the people who seem to have it all together. So like for us, I think we just naturally are attracted to folks that, that feel like they can move us up in a social ladder, and that's not a conscious thing. I don't think we're strategizing about that, right? I think that's just something that we tend to do. But then what ends up happening is we're always creating a friend group that's, like, helping us socially, or they help our self-image or whatever, or we're, we're just looking for people who are exactly like us. And so it's, it's, it's rare that we look out and we see someone who's just completely unlike us, and in particular see someone who's, who's in a lot of visible brokenness, right? Just deep addiction. Maybe they're full of rage and and just, you know, like not at all the sort of person that you'd expect to like receive the gospel of Jesus and, and be grateful for it. But 
in my experience, the people most ready to hear the gospel are those who are visibly broken. The people who are most ready to receive the announcement of the good news are those that, that like, can't even put on a good face, right? There's no deceiving society for them anymore. They're the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and they are going into the kingdom of heaven far before the successful uh, kind of have-it-all-together folks sip and pour over coffee at Hansa. They are going in before them. I lump myself in with, with the folks that, that fit more in with the hipsters than with the broken, right? So for me, this has been convicting as well, that I have to recognize my own brokenness, and part of that is, is, is realizing that there's this thing in me that makes it harder to come to the kingdom than, than it might be for someone else. We're not looking for the cultural A-listers, though they're welcome as well. But as you go out to announce the good news... Be conscious of your own biases. That's all I'm saying. I think we need to be conscious of our own biases as we go out to bring the good news. What Jesus cares about is that we are willing to live lives of repentance, and he is calling us from from the top strata of socioeconomic society to the bottom. He is calling all of us into lives of repentance. He cares if we are willing to walk the walk. So secondly, Jesus replaces a people who reject the Son with a people who honor him. So here's another story that Jesus tells. Again, there's a man who owns a vineyard, but this time the, the characters that he's working with are the tenants of the vineyards. So this would have been really common. Someone who owned a vineyard, they would just hire it out, and so there would be tenants who would basically live there, they'd work there, they would you know, farm the ground, and the owner may be in a completely different town, right? So he'd kind of leave it to the tenants. This is pretty common. And the tenants, like their task is pretty simple once it comes to harvest time, right? Just give the fruit to the owner. That's, that's the whole task right, is just to, to give up fruit. Give to the owner what he's owed. But then what ends up happening is this. The, the owner sends these servants out to pick up the fruit. And said the servants, they decide that they're not going to hand it over. They're actually going to kill the servants, which is just wild, right? And it's this image of, of the Hebrew prophets that God had sent to Israel so many times to say, please, repent, follow the way. I desire mercy, not sacrifice and self-righteousness. He called them over and over again to the prophets. So these servants become sort of this like symbol of these prophets going to the nation of Israel and being killed over and over again. So the first batch of servants gets slaughtered. And then the landowner, he doesn't just go and stomp down the tenants, which is what I would do, right? I'd be like, if you killed one servant, there's at least going to be a firing, right? But instead, he sends another batch of servants. So again, what we're seeing is, is another image of, of more prophets, more preachers begging from the nation repentance. And again, the servants kill, or the, the tenants kill the servants. So what does the landowner do? He gives them one final chance. He sends someone who carries authority in a way that the other servants can't. He sends someone who can represent him better than anyone. He sends someone who has just as much claim to the vineyard as the father does. The father sends his son. And the servants kill him. The actions of, of, of the owner, they're so confusing, so, but also so compelling. 
He wants to make things right with these tenants. He wants to restore their relationship to him. And they just refuse and refuse and refuse until finally it costs the life of the son. And obviously Jesus is telling the story and, and he's the son. He sees himself as the ultimate representative of God. The father's own son. That he's not just another everyday prophet. He's not just another everyday preacher. He is the one who carries the ultimate authority, and in the end, his ministry will, will lead to death. And the Jewish leaders, they, they hear this, and, and, and this is their reaction to the story. It's in verses 40 and 41. Jesus says, now when the owner of the vineyard comes back, what's he going to do to those tenants? And they say to him, he's going to put those wretches to a miserable death, and he's going to rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. So the moral of the story ends up coming out of the mouths of the people that's accusing, which is hilarious to me. And then this is Jesus' response. He says, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. So it's the same basic message that like Jesus is, is replacing the current people of God, the would-be people of God, and bringing together a new people. But here's what, what, what's different about this one. So in, in this story, what you have is the son who's rejected, right? A son who's rejected, and the tenants are going to, to suffer destruction as a result of the rejection of this son. But then there's still this like, hanging question at the end of the story is like, how will it all be made right? And what Jesus basically says is that the one rejected in this story, the son, he's going to be vindicated. That the new people of God are going to come together around him. The one the rulers will kill will be the one on whom the new people of God are built. The church is a community that derives It's energy from the grace and power and mercy of Jesus. He is the cornerstone. In other words, the whole structure is held up by this one stone. If he is removed, then it ceases to be a structure. That's how Jesus sees us as his people. At another point in his ministry, Jesus went back to a vineyard metaphor. And again, he said that that his people are like the vines, the, the branches in a vineyard, but he is the vine. That our life is derived from his life. That we are a people who are, we're meant to be just Jesus people, right? Deriving our whole life from his grace. Deriving our strength from his strength. Reliant on him to make us right with God. Reliant on him to to guide us through his word. And any spirituality that isn't built on Christ Either comes down to, well, it comes down to, to two things, I think. Either what we end up doing is we end up relying on moralism, or we end up relying on enthusiasm, which is kind of an old theological word. But moralism, moralism is when our spirituality gets built on our performance. When we are not built on Christ, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to start to look for other things to validate what, you know, where we stand with God. And so moralism is a big one for us. We start to look at how we're doing morally. 
Like, man, I'm an awesome person, dude. I got all these virtues. I'm great. I must be good with God. I meditate. I read. I fast. But really, at the end of the day, what we're, what we're doing is deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are holier than we are. The other thing that we can rely on is, is enthusiasm, which is a word that old theologians used to use to, to call sort of like ecstatic experiences. There's many huge experiences that we have in the Christian faith often, like our spirit, the spirit of God is at work, and so he does a lot of unpredictable and emotional and amazing things. But sometimes what we end up doing is we look to those experiences to validate where we stand with God, and we aren't actually looking to Jesus. So we start saying, I'm a connected person, Look at all the experiences I've had. Look what amazing things I've witnessed the Spirit doing. Look how deeply I feel things. But really, we are building our foundation on something other than Jesus. Moralism and enthusiasm are both ways of looking for power on our own terms, looking for righteousness on our own terms. But any spirituality not based on Christ isn't Christian spirituality. If my confidence comes from my morals, I'm deceiving myself. If my confidence comes from my experiences, I'm just fully looking in the wrong place. Our confidence comes from the cornerstone. Jesus is most visible in people who are most needy for him. So if we as Christians are going to be anything, we're going to be Jesus people, people who love Jesus, depend on him, can't talk enough about him, who love making a big deal about him. So lastly, Jesus continues to purify his people. So this last story is a little strange. So you have this father who's a king, and his son is getting married. And so he sends out all these invitations to all these people saying, come and celebrate the wedding of my son, right? It's this big feast that's going to take place, and everybody chooses to go back to their their business, back to the farm. None of them take him up on, on his invitation, all the people that, that were the original recipients of the invite, they all reject it. And so the king says, well, I've got all this food. People are going to come to this feast. So he sends another bout of, of servants out to the people who originally invited. And he says, please come. Come to this feast. And all the servants get killed. And so the king goes out and he retaliates, right? He, their destruction falls on the original invitees. And then he tells his servants, go into the highways. Don't look anymore among the people who should have come. Look among the people who who you wouldn't expect. And it says that the good and the bad, the the sort of people who seemed righteous and the people who seemed unrighteous, they all respond. They're, They're coming off the streets to go to this feast, and it's full of this unexpected, motley crew of people who have responded to the invitation of the king. Now, here's where the the story diverges. So far, I think it's basically what we've seen in the other two stories, right? Here's where it kind of diverges. The king is walking around the feast, and he sees a guy who's not wearing a wedding garment. So the wedding garment, I mean, it wasn't anything extravagant. It was something that most people had. Or, in fact, there's, there's one ancient source where, where oftentimes kings would supply the wedding garment for, for people. And so if you're going to a wedding, there's literally zero excuse to not wear the wedding garment. It was just sort of a way of, of honoring the host, and everybody had access to this. So we shouldn't think of this as like, oh, is the king mad that he's not dressed fancy enough? It's not that. It's not that sort of a thing. Again, oftentimes the kings would be the ones supplying the wedding garments at the door. And so this guy shows up, and he's trying to enjoy the benefits of the feast— 
without honoring the host. He wants to be there. He just doesn't want to, I don't know, do the whole wedding, honoring of the son, the host thing. That part, not so much. He wants the food, but he doesn't really have this sort of relationship with the host that's meaningful at all. It's the host approaches him. And here he's, here's what he says. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man is speechless. And the king says to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Here's why this moment is so unsettling to me. If we are following the pattern of the other two stories, once we're, we're all at the wedding feast, that's supposed to be the new community of Jesus, the new community brought together, right? And so isn't it happy ending now? Instead, what Jesus is saying is that all of us within the new community still have to be vigilant. That any one of us could be in the new people of, of the Lord. We could be part of the church, but not wearing a wedding garment. That at the end of the day, attendance doesn't mean anything. At the end of the day, just associating yourself with the people of God doesn't mean anything. We can't have the kingdom without the king. And so destruction is actually possible even for those of us who call ourselves Christians. It's not because we need to like rise up to this moral bar of perfection. That's not it. But at the end of the day, what is it that, that we're doing when we come to Jesus? We're coming to him for his rule. We're coming to him so that despite all that's wrong with us. That doesn't get to say, have the final word on our lives, and we can come to the Lord and be included in his people and learn the way of righteousness, and it all depends not on our works but on his grace. But at the end of the day, if we're coming and we just want to socialize with the people of God but really don't actually want to live under his rule, we're not the people of God. And so the, the message for us is to keep watch on each other and on ourselves, to keep trusting Jesus, to keep repenting. And that's not a works righteousness thing. Again, there's no like bar of moral perfection that we need to reach. Instead, it's just step by step by step, trusting on the grace of Christ and following his way, knowing that even if we stumble at every step, He will guide us home. So it's a sobering word for us here at the end. God replaces his people to reconstitute a people who walk the walk, who honor the Son, and who continue to to remain faithful to the way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this message here at the end of warning for us would not be lost. But that you can do more, I'm asking that you would do more than my words can, Lord. And that for those who are tender-hearted, who are following the way, who are relying on your grace, who are repenting daily, but aware of ongoing sin, I pray that you would comfort them now 
with the message of the cross and assure them that, that they are safe in, 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 in you. But also, Lord, do more than my words can for those who are hard-hearted, who uh, should not assume that they stand in the right before you. I, I pray that you would unsettle them deeply. Lord, we thank you for your grace. The community that you are bringing together is not a community that, that our world would recognize as um, qualified or competent or whatever. You are bringing together a bunch of ragamuffins, as Rich Mullins used to say, and I praise you for that, God. I pray that Trinity would, would be a people who, who welcome the ragamuffin, who recognize that, that, that all of us are the same in, in that respect. That we would be a people of grace, but also a repenting people who desire your kingdom and demonstrate it. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.